beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. This conversation with my old friend, Sean Smucker, is one of my very favorites that I've had in a while, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Sean is an author and a husband and a dad and a truly all-around amazing human being. We've been friends for nearly 10 years, and he has been a kind, funny, and consistent friend, sending notes of encouragement frequently. Sean is that kind of friend who does the work behind the scenes, the stuff that no one ever talks about, knows about, or gets credit for. I asked him on the show to talk about his latest novel called The Weight of Memory, a book that I read in one day and loved. But our conversation actually spans all kinds of topics, including whether or not we censor what our kids read, which I thought was interesting. I got so caught up talking to Sean and loving it that it took us nearly half an hour to get to the title of this episode, Books We Wish We'd Written, but we do get there. And I love talking about books and writing with Sean. For my Secret Stuff subscribers, Secret Stuff is my private Patreon podcast. Sean and I have a whole separate conversation over there about the best books that we've read lately, and I love the three nonfiction titles he thinks are the best of 2021 so far. I'm going to let Sean tell you a bit more about himself in the episode, but you can find him online at seansmucker.com, and he's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Sean Smucker, Sean spelled S-H-A-W-N. Please enjoy my conversation with novelist Sean Smucker. Sean, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. Laura, this is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I love seeing your face so much. We have a long, long history of friendship that we'll get to in a second. But for my general 10 Things to Tell You listeners who are not used to hearing a man's voice on this show, frankly, okay? <laughs> you're not the very first one, but you're like in the, in the very big minority. Will you please explain to everyone a little bit about who you are and the amazing art that you put into the world? Oh, well, you're very kind. I'm uh, Sean Smucker. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with my wife, my wonderful wife, Miley. 
we have six kids. Um, we just recently moved. I make a living writing. So I, I write novels. I also co-write and ghostwrite books along with other people. So I help people write memoirs and topical books and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, The Weight of Memory just came out a couple of weeks ago, my latest novel. And I read it in one day. It's so <laughs> good, Sean. We're going to talk about that in two seconds. But you and I have been friends for a long time now, like almost a decade. Can you believe it? It makes me feel really old, actually. <laughs> well, when we first met, you did not have quite so many children. <laughs> <laughs> or quite so many white hairs. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, Sean and I actually met, I mean, we, we probably physically met in the airport, but we like met, met, like got to know each other on a soul spiritual level in the back of a van in Sri Lanka, like almost 10 years ago. That is not something that I can say about many of my friends, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty unique situation. It is such a unique situation. I wrote about it in my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. I wrote about it in the chapter titled, When Did It Change? Because we have so many laughable, hilarious memories on that trip. And I feel so bonded to the people on that trip. But actually, it's one of those moments in time that really did change my life. And I know for you and the, and the other people that were in that van with us for many, many hours on this week-long trip to Sri Lanka, feel the same way. It was like a really pivotal moment for me. It's amazing to me how, I mean, I'm glad to know that you feel this way because I feel so close to those people, like the whole group. I feel like they're really super close friends, even though we rarely see each other. We don't talk that often, you know, we'll exchange some messages here and there, but it's amazing to me how spending one week like that with someone gallivanting through, you know, the foreign countryside of a country on the other side of the earth. It's like such a unique experience that I feel so bonded to all of you. I think that like, there's so many things about it that are unique because we were in full-blown adulthood. And I feel like sometimes you don't have those type of moments, except when you're like 16, you know what I mean? And you're like on some kind of pivotal trip in your life when you're young and your life is completely ahead of you and all of this. And that's not where we were. I mean, we were yeah. definitely adults and married and had children. And I mean, not all of us, but like we were in adulthood, we were in our late twenties, thirties. And we sat in this van that was driving around Sri Lanka. And I feel like we were in there for hours and hours and we showed up as writers. We were all there as bloggers and we showed up like with our shiny professional ready for an adventure selves. And like by day three, we were cracked and crumbling and sobbing and like, <laughs> you know, you suddenly, and you know, we were there without like spouses. We were there without, we didn't know each other. So we didn't have best friends. We didn't have any like crutches. And so suddenly it felt like our truest selves, because we were in these sort of what was hard conditions for us and emotional conditions for us, our truest selves like rose to the top. And I just think when you are in a literal closed environment with people who are seeing your most like broken makeup free shabbiest self, like you can't help, but come away from that experience changed. And then it happened to all of us at the same time. It wasn't like just one person had like their light bulb moment. It was like one by one, we fell like dominoes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I have this image of my head of that place where we were staying. And the first night we were there, I remember sitting outside of the room, which was like this open courtyard area and just kind of looking around and everyone's heading off to bed and like, you know, everyone's going into their rooms and lights are turning on and the sun is setting in Sri Lanka and I specifically remember sitting there and thinking, what am I doing here? This is crazy, you know? Literally the other side of the world with however many strangers, complete strangers. I mean, I, I barely knew a couple of the people who were there. 
And I did, I wondered what, what is this all about? This is, this just seems so bizarre, but over the next couple of days of the long drives and like you're saying, just kind of being exposed to things that I had never been exposed to before as far as poverty. And it was just such a, such a unique experience. Friends, if you want to hear more about this trip and in fact, hear the audio version of a reunion that we all had earlier this winter, those are part of my secret tape interviews. Those are part of the interviews that I did around the launch of my book, because I wrote about this trip in my book and we're all on the audio talking about what this trip meant to us. It's one of my favorite conversations of the last year, for sure. You can listen to that on the secret tapes. And that is part of my private podcast called secret stuff. I will link to all of that in the show notes, but Sean, wait one second. First, I have to say, I feel like I, I'm not surprised when I see the success of your book and the topic of your book, when I think back on that trip, because I do feel like, Laura, you were such a stimulus to us all talking about stuff, getting to know each other. I mean, I remember riding in the, in the bus or in the van and, you know, here you come along with your questions. Well, what about you? Where are you from? Like, what do you think about this? What about this? And I'm from here and this and that. And I think it's so interesting to me that like, that's just who you are. And I think that's why your book has done so well, because it is who you are. Like this book is who you are, like 10 things to tell you in the podcast. I, I think that's such a wonderful thing that you bring to the communities that you're in, the people that you're around. And I do feel like that was one of the reasons that we got to know each other so well. Well, thank you for saying that. You know what I love about you saying that and any real life friends who say something similar is that it's so validating to me for people to know that it's not like just shtick, that in my real life, I actually am like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's not just a podcast gimmick, but I really do make people in my real life talk and I ask a million questions and it either drives people crazy or they come away bonded or maybe both if you're to ask Jeff. So anyway, thank you for saying that. But yeah. the point of our conversation today is to talk about you and your book and writing in general, because you're one of my favorite writers to talk about writing with. And so let's talk about your writing career in just like a big picture way. Can you tell me how you got to, you know, being a novelist and being a ghostwriter, which I find to be fascinating? Yeah, in 2000, about 2007, 2008, my aunt came to me, uh, Auntie Ann from Auntie Ann Soft Pretzels. And said okay, stop. You pre- cannot just blow <laughs> by that detail. Okay. I know this is the only reason you're friends with me. <laughs> this is such an important thing for people to soak in is that, she, is that your aunt is literally Auntie Ann's. Y'all, those pretzels, you can get them at the mall. You can get them at the airport. I love them so much. And Auntie Anne is a literal aunt and she is Sean's aunt. And this is, she is like my aunt. remarkable. Okay. Now everyone has soaked that in. Keep going. Yeah. So, so she approached me and, and said, Hey, you're a writer. I've had a publisher, you know, and an agent who want me to write a book. Would you consider writing some sample chapters for that? And so we met a couple of times and I was an English major in school. I had been doing a lot of writing, graduated from college in 99. So it had been quite a few years, you know, 10 years. So we write, we wrote some sample chapters together. The agent loved them. The publisher loved them. I ended up writing her book called Twist of Faith about her life, which is an incredible story. And it just kind of rolled from there. I started to get more requests from people who read her book, uh, wondering if I could help them write a book. And so I've probably written 30 or 35 books for other people in the last 10 years or so. And when, hold on, when you ghostwrite, everybody knows what a ghostwriter is, but I just want to clarify that you get no credit for those books. Like you're allowed to talk about Auntie Anne, but for the rest of them, they, they claim credit for having written those books. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so to be fair, I mean, most of the books that I've done would probably be considered co-writing because I'm usually listed somewhere, not necessarily on the cover, but maybe on the title page, or at least in the acknowledgements. I've done very few projects 
where I, I'm trying to think if I've done any where the person is, you know, where I have to sign like a non-disclosure or, I mean, I haven't gotten to that level yet. You know, if you're talking like presidents and things like that, it's a little bit different, but so, so that's how I made a living or how I continue to make a living mostly. And then in 2013, one of my co-writing projects took me to Istanbul, Turkey. It was actually right after our trip to Sri Lanka, three or four months later, I flew to Istanbul to help a gentleman write his memoir and he was dying of cancer. He was in stage four. Uh, he, he lived for about three months after we finished working together. And I spent three months with him. Oh, no, sorry. I spent three weeks with him. And it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. He had this saying, he would pull the verse from John where it says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But when it dies, there's a harvest. And so he, he really believed that his death, like there would be good things that came out of his death. And that man, I mean, he was only 49, 50 years old. I was, you know, in my probably early thirties at the time. And so working with him and then I came home and I think I was probably low grade depressed after sitting with him for all those weeks and just like being confronted with my own mortality. And when I got home, I thought, man, I've always wanted to write a book for my kids, you know, something like The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe or like a book that I loved when I was a kid. And so I remember specifically, Miley and I had four kids at that point. We were sitting around the, the dining room table one night and I asked them, I was like, so I'm going to write a book for you guys. What do you think it should be about? You know? And so we just started brainstorming and I decided to use their names for all the, for the main characters. And I self-published the day the angels fell. And that was my first novel. After I self-published it, I wrote the sequel. And in the meantime, I'd picked up an agent to kind of help me with my co-writing work. And she read the books and said, Hey, I don't think you should self-publish this right away. I think I could actually help you find a publisher. So she did, she found a publisher for me. And so they published the day the angels fell and the sequel to edge of over there. And then my first novel for adults, which was from distant stars. Why did you self-publish the day the angels fell? Was it something that you shopped and didn't get any nibbles or was it that you just wanted to do it more quickly or you wanted all the you know, the bulk of the profits. Like there's a lot of reasons to self-publish, but why did you? So I decided to self-publish. I, I tried to find an agent. I didn't have an agent at that point when I first finished it. And so I did query some agents, didn't have much luck. I didn't stick at that for very long. I probably queried agents for like a couple of months. So it wasn't something that I was hundred percent committed to. And then I, I actually had a couple of high school friends who passed away within like three months or six months of each other, uh, one from a car crash and one from cancer. And I felt when those things happened, I felt like, you know what, I just got to get this thing out. Like I am not guaranteed, you know, I just finished writing this memoir and now I have these friends who passed away and I, I just felt like it was time to get this book out. So I self-published it. I used Kickstarter, which was awesome. You know, I pre-sold hundreds of copies through Kickstarter, which was great. And then because I had such a positive experience self-publishing that, I, I kind of stopped pursuing traditional publication. I just thought, well, this is great. You know, I'll just, I'll just keep going this route. Well, it's funny you say that because I know you're not like as into the business of online marketing world that I am. Like, I love all the online like business podcasts and all these different things I listen to. And so they're not talking about novels. And I know that that's, you know, it can be two different machines really, but a lot of people in the nonfiction world are really advocating self-publishing for all the reasons that you said, not just an urgency around mortality necessarily, but like just to get it out there. Like publishing is so slow. Traditional publishing is so slow compared to the speed of the internet. And if you're working on the internet, that's what you're putting your work out into. Then to self-publish, you know, keep the profits, be on your own timeline. If you can afford to do, and most of these people can afford to do, you know, your own cover art, how, you know, outsource really professional looking cover art and, you know, outsource an editor so that, you know, everything looks great. But I mean, like, if you can do those things, I think it's really shaking up traditional publishing. I would say not just for the profit margin, but primarily for the timeline. I think it's a timeline thing. 
Yeah, I have a friend, Andy Cumbo Floyd. Do you know Andy? She wrote, uh, she writes Cozy Mysteries. She has a book. Actually, I think she has a pen name, ACF Bookins, I think is her pen name. Her, her, the first book in this series of Cozy Mysteries is called Publishable by Death. And she just posted on Facebook the other day that using the online marketing strategies and the email list that she's built up and then letting the book, releasing the book for free. Um, it's been out there for a little while, but then she went back and did a free, free, free time period. She was, she had the number one book in all of Kindle for free, for free Kindle books and had like 25,000 copies get out there. She's got 1200 reviews and she makes a good living uh, self-publishing books. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad we took that tangent or mentioned that because I get a ton of DMS and messages and whatever about people who want to write a book or people who want to publish and where they snag primarily is, you know, finding an agent shopping it. They don't have any kind of a social media platform or newsletter list or whatever. They don't have any platform. And especially for nonfiction, that's a no-go. It's almost impossible to get a book deal without some kind of a platform, unless you have like an insanely remarkable story. And so people just get so discouraged by that very beginning part. And I think when I tell people, you should think about self-publishing, because I say that to people all the time, they feel like I'm like demoting them or, you know, like that I'm saying, but I'm just like, you just don't need all those gatekeepers. And the way that yours worked is, and this has happened for a a number of people, is if you self-publish, and you sell enough copies, someone will notice. And then if you are dying to be in Barnes and Noble, which, and also, you know, that's a whole different arm of the publishing industry. But I mean, if that's your dream, that can still happen for you too. Like, but don't just hear the no or hear self-publishing and think that, you know, that it's like printing it out at Kinko's and stapling a copy together. (laughs) Like that's not what it is. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, we really do have these, we have such deeply held feelings about self-publishing and so much has changed. There is absolutely zero shame in it. You know, there's zero shame in it. You can create a book that is just as beautiful, just as polished. You know, you have to spend a little bit of money. That's where, that's where sometimes also is a little bit of a hangup, but that, you know, you can hire an editor, you can hire a cover designer, and you can hire the same cover designers who are designing covers for publishers. And it, it doesn't cost an absolute fortune. So it's, it's a totally valid option. My last, this book, uh, The Weight of Memory is my current last book under contract. So I know many authors, I've actually been surprised as I speak with other published authors, traditionally published authors, how many of them go back and forth. And it's just kind of this fluid journey between traditional publishing, then they'll self-publish some some books, and then they're back again. I mean, it it is really a wonderful option these days. Yeah. I wonder if that will be my path going forward. I have another book in me with my publisher who has been wonderful to work with. I've had a great experience, and it was important to me as someone who had spent a decade building a platform that I did want to be in, in bookstores, and that did matter to me on a on a personal level, but like now that I'm, that I've done it and I'm looking to the next 10 years of my writing career or whatever, I don't know what it's going to look like. And I won't be surprised if I go back and forth also just be, yeah, for everything I already talked about, but I'm glad people are talking about it. I want people to hear this as a, tr- as a real option and not just yes. as like a consolation prize kind of thing. Yes. Yes. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. 
with artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to BornShoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's Born, B-O-R-N, Shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. Okay, but now let's talk about your novel. Now we're going to talk about your actual <laughs> novel. <laughs> so I, as we're recording this, I am on a little staycation that I took a few days away at the beach. Your book just came out last week. I have it in my hands. I read it in one day. I <laughs> tore through it. I hope that that's a compliment and not a weird thing. Actually, when people told me they read my book in one day, I was like, that's not what you were supposed to do. Your book, <laughs> your book is not a one day book. <laughs> but when I'm saying it to you, when I'm saying it to you, it's because I couldn't put it down. It was such a page turner. I think you have like perfected that art of a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. And I was like, I stayed up way too late, Sean. I'm actually oh, a person wonderful. who likes to go to bed. And I stayed up way too late because I was like, what is going to happen? I also did not know what to expect. This book is, I want you to explain what you think the book is, but I, I did not expect it to have like a magical, is it magical realism? Is that the right word? With ghosts, you guys, it has ghosts. Okay. That's what I mean. It's, it was just so good. I had to know everything that was going to happen. And it's so satisfying by the end. Please explain to the listeners a little bit about the premise of this book, but we do no spoiler book talk on this show. Yes. Laura, you just made my entire, like probably month, maybe year. Um, I'm just so happy to hear that you enjoyed it. I'm really happy about that. Um, So I set out with this book. I wanted to write a fairy tale for adults. That was my goal. I had recently read George MacDonald's book, The Light Princess, which is a very short sort of fairy tale. And when he was writing back, you know, a couple hundred years ago, he wasn't writing for kids. I mean, it, these days his books are kind of classified as kid books because they're, there are kids in them as the main characters, but he wasn't writing for kids. And, and so that, that was kind of my goal. And I also, I love the movie Pan's Labyrinth. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I loved what Guillermo del Toro did with Ophelia, the main character, and how he created this situation where she was living out two stories, where she's living out this story in real life and she's living out a story that you're not really sure throughout the movie. Is this her imagination? Is this really happening? And so that was my goal was to write a a fantasy for adults with this sort of dual almost dueling realities. But instead of telling it from the girl's perspective, which is kind of hard these days, because typically if, if your protagonist is, you know, 12 years old, you're going to get shelved as young adult. And I, and I didn't want this to be perceived as a young adult book. So I, I, I decided to tell it from the perspective of her grandfather, who's raising her, Paul. 
and he receives a terminal diagnosis in the first chapter. And again, I'm kind of obsessed with death in my novels. If you've read my novels, I'm obsessed with death. And I'm also obsessed with memories. So this whole idea that we don't really remember our lives as they actually happen. We remember them as we choose to remember them. And so I put him in the situation where he's raising his granddaughter and he has to go back. He has to go home to where he grew up to try and find someone who will take her in. And finally, and then I'll let you talk again. I wanted to write this in the second person or at least sort of a, a, a approximate second person because I love Gilead, uh, Marilyn Robinson's book. I loved how she was able to create this intimacy between her protagonist and his son, his much younger son. And that relationship always struck me as one that was very interesting and sort of peculiar in literature is this relationship between that, that father and son because I think it's in second person. So he's telling the story to his son. He's not necessarily talking to the reader. So that's why I, I had Paul really t talking to his granddaughter as he's telling the story. I liked that structure. I liked that that was the point of view. I liked that it felt very cinematic. I just liked that I could see the whole thing in my mind, like as if it were a movie when they drive into town, this town he hasn't been back to in 40 years when they meet people from his past, like I just felt like I could see it just very cinematically, the house that they end up staying at, everything. And then of course there is a twist, a couple of twists like towards the end. So I wanna ask you as someone who's never written a novel before, do you come up with the bones of the story? Like, did you know kind of what the twist was gonna be, what we were kind of working towards, if you will? all on around the idea that our memories are faulty a little bit. And you're getting hints of that throughout the entire book. That's not a spoiler. But did you kind of know the overall structure of where we were going to land? Or do you do that thing where you just write as you go and see where the story takes you? Yeah. So when I wrote The Day the Angels Fell, my first novel, I had tried to write novels before that. And I would always get to like 20, 30, 40,000 words and then lose my way. Like the story would go off the rails. I'd go down the rabbit trail and then I'd feel like, oh, this is dumb. I can't, I can't finish this. So when I wrote The Day the Angels Fell, I was really determined that that was not going to happen. Once I got in about 20 or 30,000 words, I, I kind of paused and sketched out a rough outline of where I thought the story was going to go, what I thought the climax was going to be and the ending. And that, that worked pretty well for me. And so I've kind of taken that on now as part of my process is once the first, like I said, the first 20,000, 30,000 words, the first third of the book, I'm kind of freewheeling, getting to know the characters, figuring out, I, I mean, I put them in a situation early, but then I kind of see what happens. But then once I reach a certain point, I start to feel a little nervous. Like, am I, is this actually going to go somewhere? And so I'll, I'll brainstorm, I'll do some free writing and figure out what is the climax that I'm shooting for? I don't know if you can see it. And obviously the listeners won't be able to see this. So, so once I, the current book that I'm working on, once I got to about 30,000 words, um, I created this, which is an outline of each of the parts. And all these are scenes. These are characters. I have like family trees on the back. And so I created this once I was about a third of the way into that book. Um, I just create something physical that I can see, which is kind of like, the structure that I envision the book going through. Well, that's so good. That's almost like a hybrid of the different advice that I've heard or read, which is like, you know, just write and see the characters will unfold where the story is. <laughs> and then I've also heard like, no, that's dumb. You need to like have a roadmap at the very yeah. least. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I like what you're saying. It sounds like you kind of write, you start kind of getting to know these characters and see if you're interested in them and see if you want to write a story with them. And then you figure out what the story is after you've kind of started. I like that. I've never heard that before. That's cool. Yeah. I like the roadmap. I mean, I feel like it's fun to create that and I really don't stick very strictly to it. So, you know, if, if I realize, well, okay, this character really actually wouldn't do that, but I, I feel, you know, Miley and I teach nine month novel writing classes and the main thing for that first draft is just to get written out. You can go back and fix it. You can, you know, you can fix anything, but 
what, what can we do to give ourselves the tools to get that first draft written? And, and I feel like for me, these are the tools that I need to just get that first draft down. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. Okay. Now I have a question that I really want us both to answer because we're both avid readers. We're both writers. You're much better, more experienced writer than I am, but I just love talking books and writing with you. So tell me a book that you wish that you'd written. There are probably about a dozen that I could list off really quickly, but the first one that always comes to my mind is John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. Mm. Um, And I think partially because of the story that it is, but also because of the role that it played in my life. I was a freshman in college when I first read that book. And it was in one of my very first English classes. I was an English major, and this was one of my very first English classes that I took. And that was the book that we read. And I, I don't know, I'd never read anything like it. And the ending is so stunning and so perfect. Uh, It wasn't until years later that I learned that John Irving, did you know this? He writes the last, he writes the end of the book first. What? Like the first thing that he writes is the end of the book and he works his way backward. And the first sentence of the book, the opening sentence is usually the last thing that he writes. Um, which I just find so that crazy. is crazy. <laughs> that is like memento. That is like what is happening. Yeah. So I, I, that book I just find to be so compelling and the ending so beautiful. So that, so for me, that that's the one that always sort of jumps to the top. What about you? I want to hear what yours are. Well, it's funny. My first one is also one that I loved in college that I sort of discovered in college. And I think there's something happening in our brains in that, in those years, right? Like from 18 to 22 or whatever, there's something really important happening to a person, I think, whether they're in college or not, but just like, I don't know, developmentally, whenever I talk to people about their life decisions or whatever, I don't know, their formative, their favorite movie, their favorite, whatever. It just feels like those years are so important. But anyway, my first one is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Wow. I read that book. It's very short. It's one day. It's like a day in the life which if anyone's followed me for a long time, like I love a day in the life, <laughs> like my thing. And it starts with the opening sentences. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself because she's going to have a party that night. And she's a very, you know, she's kind of a rich older woman and she has a lot of help to throw her party, but she's going to go buy the flowers herself. And she goes into town and you know she has a spouse and she runs into someone from her past and then there's like sort of some social elements in her little town or community or whatever. And it is truly just this, you know, rich old woman throwing a party. It's just her day, but it's stunning. It is so beautiful and simple. And Mrs. Dalloway herself is, I love it when they get a woman character, right? Of course, Virginia Woolf got a woman character, right? But like the, the complications of like, in some ways she's like despicable, but in other ways, she's just so human and you relate to her. And, and the fact that she's like sort of secretly a little bit unlikable are, are like the same ways you feel like maybe you're unlikable. You know what I mean? But you don't want anyone to know yeah. that, but you're reading like, yeah. you know, and I just, I loved her, the way she thinks about the past and the way she is about her life choices and I just read it and I was like, oh, this is a special something. And I've read Virginia Woolf and she's an amazing writer. And obviously she's a, her books are considered classics now, but I just have a special affection for Mrs. Dalloway. In fact, I, I did a study program in England in college and part of that study was you had to take one work and really dissect it. And and I did Mrs. Dalloway. And so that's really. Yes. And so it was amazing to study Virginia Woolf in Oxford. And it was just like, I just loved every part of it. So, but it just has a effect on me, that book. I've reread it several times since and probably do another reread. But when I read it, I think this is the type of thing I wish I had written because I 
really love simple stories and simple writing. So like currently right now, one of my favorite authors is Elizabeth Strout. She also writes in this way that is like simple on the surface, but just so, so much depth of meaning, but you know, like her books don't have big plot lines. You know what I mean? They're just people. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, I love Elizabeth Strout. I love Elizabeth Strout. And And to me, I love simple stories. And, you know, a lot of people don't like people don't love character driven stories or stories without a plot. I mean, Mrs. Dalloway, there is no plot. She's throwing a party. That's the plot. (laughs) People want like a fast paced thing or they want twists and turns or they want, you know, I don't know. And I just love a slow character read. (laughs) Did you read the hours then? I have read the hours, but it's been a long time. I probably, I mean, it's been a long time since I read it too. Because after that, you know, then I went like on a Virginia Woolf rampage and read like everything, you know, some of those things you don't get when you're 23. Like I read to the lighthouse or whatever. I mean, well, I don't understand that when I was mm-hmm. in my twenties, like I need to reread that clearly. Yeah. But anyway, I just love a simple story. And sometimes I feel like when simple stories currently, when, when modern simple stories come out, I feel like sometimes the critique is people are like, I don't get it. She's just throwing a party. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> And I'm like, no, and it's not that they don't get it. It's that they don't, it's not like a lack of getting it. It's more of just like, why is this a story? (laughs) I could totally see you writing a novel like that. Totally. I think I want to write a novel like that. That's why it's in my like books I wish I'd written. I just want to write like a one day, a day in the life or one character's experience on a weekend or something. I don't know, whatever it is, but like just something very simple. To me, those are the most profound. Those are the ones that I think about years later, Mm, those type of books. Do you have another one? Yes. Um, I have fallen in love over the years with David James Duncan's book, The Brothers K. Um, Have you read it? I haven't because when it was popular, I was a snobbier reader than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) it's so good I mean it it hits some really great points like great points I mean powerful points so it talks about Vietnam it's talking about baseball uh it's totally based on this family you know so I love books that are that dig into family relationships and is it a um, is it a retelling of the brothers Karamazov or what is it there's I mean so you could probably write like a thesis paper on that, you know, and there would be a ton of connections. I've never actually sat down and, and made them, but so his three brothers, let's see, I don't know if I can remember their names, Everett, Irwin, and Peter. I think they're sort of loosely based on the three brothers and the brothers Karamazov as far as their weaknesses and, you know, the things that they love. So I think Peter is uh, he goes on this sort of Buddhist, he, he travels to India and goes on, you know, like a pilgrimage um, in the Brothers K. And so he would probably relate to one of the brothers in the Brothers Karamazov. And, and so there, there are these connections. But, you know, the thing about the Brothers K that, that always left me with such a strong impression was that, I don't want to spoil it, that book was one of the first books that I ever read where I finished it and I thought, oh, there's something worse than death. And not that what happens at the end of the book is worse than death, but there's something that, like you can have this sad, sad ending or sadness as part of the ending. And yet a character didn't die to cause that. You know, Mm. like most books, authors, they bring you to this point, there's this climax, somebody dies and then you're super sad and then the book ends somehow. But with this book, it was just so different in what happens to one of the characters. And so I think that's one of the reasons it's also stayed with me for so many years. You know, it's funny, that book has been like in my periphery, like it's been on my radar for so long and I've always resisted it. And I have this thing in my life where when there's books I resist, I, and I ultimately do end up reading them maybe 10 years later or whatever. And I'm like, this is the best book I've ever read. Laura, this is exactly what happened to me with Elizabeth Strout. So Miley read Olive Kitteridge 
probably very soon after it came out and it's been out what 10 years, eight years. I don't know. It's been out for a while. And as she's reading the book in bed every night, she's like, Oh my word, you have to read this book. It's amazing. You have to read this book. And for some reason in my head, I just got this block. I don't know if it was the cover. I didn't really like the cover. Um, I just thought I'm not reading that book. Like that's dumb. I'm not reading the book. And I'm so stupid. I mean, this is my wife. She has such a wonderful taste in books. We always like the same books. And she was like, oh, you got to read this. You got to read this. And I just, for some reason, it just thought I'm not reading that book. And about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, you know, I'm kind of moving around the house, looking for something to read, shuffling through the bookshelves. And I see this, you know, Olive Kitteridge and I'm like, whatever, I'll give it a read. And it is like the most amazing book ever. It totally blew me away. I couldn't believe how she was able to give you all these different sides to Olive. I mean, how do you do that, you know, with all these different characters and stories? And so I know exactly what you mean. She's so good, but I do think she has some kind of titling style or book cover style that is, is also not attractive to me. And it's not every book. I haven't hated every title or cover, but on the whole, I agree with you. I would not be attracted to Elizabeth Strout books. The first one I read was my name is Lucy Barton. Mm. And I can't even remember why I picked that one up for some weird reason. I read it on vacation years ago. And then I was like, so blown away by it. And now it's not even my favorite of hers, but yeah, yeah, that was the first one that I read. And I also didn't like that cover. Yeah. I, and this isn't, you know, I don't know. I'm not trying to like critique her. She's truly one of my very, very, yeah. very favorite writers right now. I'm like almost obsessed with her, but I know what you're saying where you're like, I don't, this doesn't appeal to me. I felt like Olive Kitteridge sounded sweet. It sounded like an American girl doll. It did not sound like yes. what I would want to read because I don't like sweet or fluffy or anything. And so yes. I was like, yeah, no. So yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, well, my next one of books I wish I'd written is not totally on brand for me, but I think you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. That blows me away. I would not have picked that book for you. <laughs> for like, if, if I could have guessed a book a minute, it would be probably decades <laughs> before I would ever have chosen that. Why? Because of C.S. Lewis himself? I don't know. I just see you as being more of like into literature and yeah, I don't know. Well, so I read the screw tape letters probably in high school. I don't, I think I was out of middle school and you know, it's one demon writing to another demon. And at the time I felt like it was, I had been reading very dark stuff, uh, horror and everything starting from elementary school on. This was when I was deeply, deeply, very religious this time when I picked this up. And so to me, it felt like it, the demon to demon spiritual warfare element, even though it was incredibly fictionalized, it wasn't spiritual warfare, like this present darkness or whatever. You know right, what I mean? It right. was, it was yeah. his demons like Wormwood is almost, they're almost cartoonish. You know I mean? They're it's silly in some ways, but it was so dark. It's so dark in what it's talking about and what it's pointing to in our psyche and like, you know, what we're tempted by, what sin is, you know, how a person thinks and hides things and all of this. Like, I just thought it was so clever when I read it and, and it felt like acceptable at the time when I, you know, it felt like acceptable horror, not horror, but you know what I mean? Like acceptable yeah, darkness. Yeah. 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 And it's funny. Also, it's super, super funny. And Here's the bigger piece of all of it that I've noticed. I love a book that is structured in letters like okay. love. Okay. And the whole thing is, is written, you know, each mm -hmm. chapter or section or whatever is letters. There's and, a fancy word for that is epistolary. Is that what it's called? I don't know. That's, that's a type of, I think book. that's what it's called. <laughs> I think it's an epistolary novel. I think that's what it is. You're the smart one. Um, <laughs> no, I love a book that's told in letters. And I, I like a book, not always, I wouldn't read this every time, but I just like a book that breaks it up like that. Like, you know, there's a totally different format 
like Daisy Jones and the six, which is told like a Rolling Stone interview, you know, anything like that, where you're getting the book in a different way than your typical prose, mm-hmm. it holds my attention. And I like it, especially because the screw tape letters, isn't that long. You're not reading 500 pages of letters. It's short. Right. Right. So I, I, but hold on, we got to rewind here for a second. So I, I love the book. I think it's, I think it's phenomenal. Did you say you were reading horror in elementary school? <laughs> yes. I, I, uh, I started reading Stephen King. I discovered him at a neighbor's house in the fourth grade and I started reading him. And I mean, I can look back now a little more objectively and I didn't know what I was reading. To be honest with you, I actually had no, it was going over my head, like 85% of it was going over my head. But I was so attracted to his writing and being scared. Um, And I have all kinds of thoughts about why I think very anxious children are attracted to scary things. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I have an interesting Stephen King story as well, because I grew up in probably a very similar home as you did and very conservative and I started reading Stephen King in about sixth or seventh grade. And I remember coming home one day from school and all of my Stephen King books, probably 10 of them, were on a pile on the kitchen table. <laughs> and I, my heart just sank and I thought, oh no. And later that night, my dad was like, so are you reading these books? I was like, yeah. And he said something like, do you think you should be? And I was like, no. (laughs) And that was it. We never talked about it again (laughs) to this day. Wait, but hold on. Is that parenting genius or what? Is your dad some kind of a parenting genius? (laughs) It's like Yoda. I don't know. (laughs) I was very much a rule follower. So I think he knew that if he just kind of clarified, you know, where the line was and that I had crossed it, that I would sort of scuttle back over the line. Well, my parents were very conservative, but they never censored what I read. So they complained that I started reading all this dark, scary stuff. And they, it really bugged them because I was a latchkey kid. And so I was at home alone all the time and would often get scared. Like I would get scared at night or whatever. And they would be annoyed because they would be like, it's because you're reading all these scary books, but they never stopped me. And I appreciate that. And I actually Mm. have not ever censored my kids reading either. Now they don't, you know, they don't read anything inappropriate actually, but I've thought about it philosophically Mm. that when that comes up, which I'm sure it will any second that I won't censor it. Actually, I'll, I take that back. My son Finch during COVID who is he's nine right now. He got absolutely obsessed with world war II, and he and his dad watched all of these World War II movies, everything they could find on Netflix or Hulu or anything that we had. That was their sort of binge-worthy COVID thing that they did together. And then he started reading books also. And I felt like some of them were graphic. I mean, World War II stories are gnarly. And I had hesitations and I almost censored that because I, you know, war stuff is, to me, war stuff is scarier than horror in some way. You know what I mean? Because it's real. Uh, But I had to return to my roots and be like, no, you know, this is, he, he's into this for some reason that maybe I don't get just like my parents didn't get why I was into horror. And so I, you know, I'm just never going to censor reading. I can't imagine any yeah. reading material in a book form, you know, the internet's different. Cause now I'm, I didn't have the internet when I was young and maybe that would have taken a different turn if I had, you know, if I'd gotten into some Stephen King fanfic, or if I'd gone down a rabbit hole of websites or something that would be different. I, you know, I can see where this is. There's nuance here is what I'm saying. But in general, I don't love censoring reading. Yeah. Miley and I take the same approach or very similar approach. I think what we've tried to do is, and I talked with Seth and Tish about this, is we try to be more like curators of their reading list. So like we, we try to really figure out what they enjoy and offer them books that we think, hey, this is something that you'll really like. If they come to us and say, you know, like if my uh, 11-year-old comes to me and says, you know, I want to read Stephen King, I would say, okay, well, it's super long. I, I don't know that you'll make it through. What if you read The Hunger Games? Or what if you read, you know, like 
try and steer them down certain roads, but I, you know, it is, it is very nuanced when you're talking about how to choose to raise your kids. I also have to remember, and now we're really going down a path here, but I have to really remember what I said at the beginning of this talk about reading horror when I was young is that I didn't understand it. And people have different philosophies on this about with their kids, whether, you know, with what movies they watch or books they read or people they're around or whatever. I mean, everyone is going to feel differently depending on their own experience, but I don't know why I think this, I'm like sort of talking this through for the first time, but I think there's some kind of value in letting them not understand it. Like I still read it when I was young, even though I didn't understand it. And why did I do that? I actually don't know why I did that, but I think Mm -hmm. that there's something about, because I wanted to be a writer even then that there was something about the actual sentences Mm -hmm. that I couldn't get enough of, which is different than being scared by the monster. You know, like I was really into the words and if I'd had a parent who made me only read Brady Bunch type books, what if I wouldn't have fallen in love with words in the same way? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's definitely something to be said for encouraging and allowing kids to go in the direction they want to go when it comes to reading, you know, and, and even in the other direction. So, or in the opposite side of the spectrum, we had um, our son Cade when he was young, he started reading very young and then he fell in love with the Hank, the cow dog books. I don't know if you're familiar with those or not. And they're just really goofy, really funny. They're about this cow dog on a ranch who gets into all sorts of trouble. And there are probably 60 books in the series. I mean, there's, you know, it goes on and on. And he read these books nonstop. I mean, there was a point in time where Miley and I would sit down and say, okay, do we need to forbid him from reading these books. He's not reading anything else. Like there's so much in the world and he's just reading Hank the Cow Dog. But the thing is like that gave him this love for reading, you know, whatever escape that was giving him, whatever sense of security or excitement, or, you know, it was, it was exactly what he needed at that time. And he's now a voracious reader and, you know, wants to go into publishing, loves books. And I really feel like if we would have stepped in and said, okay, you can't read these anymore, you know, stop. And it was the same thing with him later on. He got into um, the Percy Jackson books. I mean, he wore those things out. Like we have paperbacks that are literally falling apart, pages falling out because he would just read them over and over and over again. And after a while, as a parent, sometimes you think, okay, I want you to be well-read, like go read something else, anything else. But I think it just, it just instilled in him this love. And I think when you reread books as well, I think you learn a lot about story that maybe you don't Mm. learn by just reading different books all the time. I think some of those things, like you're saying sentence structure, some of those things I think settle in to your subconscious when you, when you reread. Yeah, I think that too. And I also think you have to have faith in your kids that they'll figure it out. Like they're going to end up taking a class that's going to force them, you know, a high school class that's going to force them to read something else they're going to have some peer pressure to read something else. They're just going to mature and developmentally, you know, want to do something else or be able to articulate why they love the thing that they love. And both of those paths are fine. You know, I just feel like sometimes we don't give kids enough credit or we think that we are the only, you know, person to shape their path. And that's just, yeah, yeah. that's not true. And I still feel like a kid myself, right? Like how, how am I an adult? Well, Sean, we have covered a lot of territory in this conversation. I've loved it so much. This has truly been an absolute treat to talk to you about all the things today. And most importantly, about your new book, The Weight of Memory, which is out now. Everyone should go get it and then spend a full day page turning on it like I did. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've loved having you. Oh, Laura, it's such a pleasure. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Just listen to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. 
I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.